Are you here? I knew you were because you know that this is the place to be. Tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for watching and or listening. You're about to orally observe Paul's third interview with singer, songwriter, recording artist, entertainer, and musician Scott Kirby. Yep, yep, and yep. Scott's one of the very talented artists on the Little Flock Music record label, and he's got a much-anticipated new album due out in 2024. By the way, did you know that this show's made possible by you, the listener? Be a patron of the Spoken Arts. Go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support and help continue to make this fully independent media possible. So, let's go down to the Roasting Room in Bluffton, South Carolina. It's time for the third go-round with Scott Kirby right here on The Paul Leslie Hour. Enjoy the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm here in beautiful downtown Bluffton, South Carolina. We are up on the second floor on the roasting room, at the roasting room, just prior to a gig with Scott Kirby. This is his third interview on this show. Yes. Thanks so much. My pleasure. For, for making be, the time. Good to be back. Absolutely. In so Beautiful Bluffton. Absolutely. Have you uh, played here on the Carolina coast? I've, well, I've played a number of times back in the day in the Charleston area. Uh, I've played here at the Roasting Room at least twice and possibly three times before COVID. This is my first time back since since COVID hit in March of 2020, I guess. So great little, great little uh, listening room. It- it looks like the perfect place for you to play. It is. It's, it's a great singer-songwriters type of venue, about 85 seats. Yeah, wonderful acoustics. That's so great. You know, something that comes up a lot in your songs is this Irish ancestry of yours. Right. And I'm just hoping you can tell us, what, what influence do you think being Irish has had on you? Well... Interestingly, I listened to one of the old interviews yesterday, and we talked about this slightly. And I, uh, I believe I said that my, my family came over from Ireland to Newfoundland during the potato famine, which I've since found is not true. They actually came from Ireland to Newfoundland in the late 1700s, so much earlier. So, uh, I mean, the Irish have a tremendous history of mus- musicianship, songwriting, storytelling, humor, and the Newfoundlanders are very well known for their music and storytelling. Uh, And so I think the combination of of the two uh, cultures in my background, the Irish and the Newfoundland, probably has to be somewhat instrumental for my my style of songwriting and my humor and my storytelling, I suppose. And I think that in addition to things that are really very pensive. There's a lot of stuff that's it's humorous that you do. How important do you think humor is in this life of ours? Well, when I was a kid, uh, very young, three, four years old, there was a lot of uh, uh, spatting in my house. I was the firstborn, so I was you know, the first child in the house. I'm sure my parents were getting used to the 
you know, having a, a little creature running around ruining their lives. And, uh, and I, I'm sure when I was four, five, six, seven, uh, when they weren't always getting along, I was, I, I know I became a very funny child. My mother's talked about it, that I was always trying to lighten up the mood in the house and get them laughing if they happen to be arguing or if I'd gotten myself into trouble. Uh, my mother said I would do hilarious things even before I remember when I was three. Uh, she told me I hid in the basement once for a whole day and didn't tell them and, you know, things like that that I thought were fun. And But uh, I've always been a big fan of humor. You know, I was a big fan of the... I, I thought really when I was younger I might become a, a want to become a comic. Huh. I used to watch the Johnny Carson show late in the night and watch all the great comics, you know, come on. And I was a class clown in my senior class. We just had my my class reunion. I was reminded that I was the class clown as, as well as the class president. So I had uh, so I, I, humor is a big part of coping. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no doubt about that. Uh, and I love to laugh. I love hearing funny stories. The absurdity of life. To, to balance the tragedy and the horrid things. And uh, I couldn't survive without it. I know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and to tell you the truth, I do find that people that don't have a very good sense of humor, sometimes they have trouble coping. Yeah. So I think it's really essential. Interesting. Now, I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, before we were doing this interview, uh, I received a text from Scott, which I've, I've never gotten somebody who said this. He said, bring it on, baby. <laughs> and I'm not used to that. Uh, At my but, age, bring it on. What else, What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and do you think that as the years go on, a, a person be, does tend to become more honest? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Totally. And uh, there's a great book written on character by David Brooks from the New York Times. And he said, you know, when people are young and uh, they're all about resume building. Right. When, you, when you're older, you're all about having a proper obituary and, and your character is your destiny. We, we've learned that from the ancient Greeks and the Stoics. Character is your destiny, honesty. So uh, I haven't done, I, I, I've, I've not had the best uh, level of character in a few situations in my life that I regret somewhat, but... I try to uh, live my life with, with a good with a level of character, and uh, I really don't have any high, anything to hide at this age or, or much to sell, so you might as well be as honest as you can. And I notice it with other older artists when they're, mm -hmm. when they're interviewed in their 60s, 70s. They're, they're, they're right. laying it out there. So There's a song of yours that I want to talk about. It is just a fantastic song. I think it might be one of your best. And also, I've gotten emails from people who have said, you know, this was this is just this is your greatest song. When we did that kind of unplugged show, I said, uh, "Can you play Lucky Man?" And you right. said, "You said not lucky enough." Right. Lucky enough. Right. And that song's resonated with a lot of people. I've actually seen people who've covered it. Uh, yes. Tell me. That song, do, do you are you kind of in agreement that that's one of your best work? Yes. Um, somehow in that song, I uh, I don't think musically it's one of my best works, 
but I think there's something about I I captured the uh, the uh, the bittersweet joy of life in that the tragedy the happiness everything's not perfect lucky enough uh, and I don't remember where I was when I wrote it but I remember the line in there about if you're living your life with the luck of the Irish and I I got that line from watching Meet the Press about 20 years ago when uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the United States Senator from New York, was on. And it was on the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. And Tim Russert asked Senator Moynihan, what do you remember about that day? And he said, you cannot grow up Irish without knowing that eventually life will break your heart. Hmm. And I, I stole that almost verbatim that line to put in the song and uh that might have been the the impetus for writing the song i can't recall but uh yeah i it's one of the few songs i don't recall really writing so maybe that's it was totally honest i suppose i mean this is an absolute compliment if somebody told me oh uh a lot of those lyrics were from the 1800s uh or uh, the melody was based on some type of Irish ballad or something. I would say, oh, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's three-quarter time, which is not necessarily an, an Irish thing. Uh, I don't even know. It's a very simple three-quarter time, uh, almost like a James, almost like Sweet Baby James, right. you know, which is three-quarter time. Uh, uh, yeah, so... Uh, I don't really know where that came from. Then the chorus goes down to a minor, you know, a minor chord. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you know, sometimes we don't know where these things come from, but I know it, it did strike a chord with people when it got started, started getting played on Radio Margaritaville. It went, it went kind of crazy there for a year or two with the yeah. CD sales. And so it obviously struck people. In, and I've seen at least 10 or 15 sailboats around the country named, and powerboats named Lucky Enough since hmm. I wrote that. People write me all the time. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Radio Margaritaville. There's somebody that I'm hoping you can talk about uh, for a bit. I don't know if he gets the credit that he deserves for all of the work he has done promoting independent artists, independent record labels. And I'm talking about, to me, he will always be the voice of Radio Margaritaville. Right. Steve, Steve Huntington. Maybe you could say a word about him. Well. Steve Huntington, and I, I mention Radio Margaritaville in just about every show I do because, and I got a chance to, to talk to Jimmy Buffett about this uh, at a show backstage in New York a couple of years ago when he came and played with Pete Mayer and I, actually. And I, I said, uh, I really, I'm really glad you started Radio Margaritaville because I wouldn't have a career driving around the country doing this without the radio station. But it was Steve Huntington who heard that song, Lucky Enough, and he was playing a lot of me back on the station when it was just an internet station before it hit right. satellite radio. Fortunately, I had a relationship with satellite radio before that. If I'm not mistaken, there was a there was a station called the uh, the vacation station. That's right. Before and they had, were playing two of my songs. So when the merger came, a whole, however that business situation developed, where Radio Margaritaville went into that slot, I already had some familiarity with the people in New York. So, you know, with Steve's influence and, you know, 
uh, I can't say enough about them. I, I literally would not be be doing this because without some some mass media support, it's really hard to to even be traveling around the country playing hundred seat places like this. I mean, I play in forty states a year, and right. it's it's you know that that radio help that radio support has been essential. So he's a great guy and uh, a real pro. Been been a radio person since he was in college. You know, he's the, and uh, I see him, I still see him all the time and uh, consider him a good friend. So, I always like to just check. So, so Scott, would you say that you're a creature of routine? Uh, well, in the sense of songwriters, you know, the Nashville songwriters, if you mean it's artistically, they tend to have a routine. They're very routine. They go into an office or they get together every week and co-write and, you know, some of them write every day. That is not my routine. And and by the way, that's not necessarily a common routine for uh, people that aren't professional songwriters, song pitchers in Nashville. More the touring singer songwriter like you know james taylor and name a thousand people i've read a lot about them their routine typically is to to uh which is exactly what i do is to keep notes in a book and then every two or three years and i'm ready to do a new batch of songs i go away by myself two three weeks and and complete solitude that's that is my routine that's the way i've done it this is my ninth album coming up that's the way I've uh, written all the songs since I've been doing this for, uh, you know, I think I did my first album in 1993. So that's that's my routine, but it's not a routine in the sense of, you know, that discipline going in, writing mm -hmm. every day. You know, some writers say write every day. That's not my, yeah. I get touring and, you know, got all kinds of other things going on. So, right. yeah. So this new record, it's going to be coming... So this new record, it's going to be coming out April 1st, April 1st, 2023. Yes. All right. And so there will be a pre-order at some point? Yes. Yeah, we. Uh, this was supposed to come out at Christmas. When I went there in February to Nashville to do the first two or three weeks recording, I had COVID, the engineer, and this, they had COVID. So we got a very late start. Uh, a lot of the work has been done since I've been away, but I, I'm going back there Monday to spend three or four days and... Hopefully by the time I leave there next week, almost all the tracks will be recorded and the vocals done. And then uh, the engineer and producer can, you know, mix it, master it, the cover and all that stuff that takes months to, to do. So Now, something that was on this most recent album that really caught my ear, I think you did it very well. You have always been a little bit, uh, I don't know, self-critical about your voice. Right. But your ability at interpreting a standard from the Great American Songbook, uh, The Summer Wind, <laughs> right. you did a fantastic job. And I mean, this is a song that if you compare the other the other people who sang it, people known for their vocals, Frank Sinatra, Wayne right. Newton, Julio Iglesias recorded it. Have you, what kind of inspired you to want to interpret a standard? 
It wasn't my idea. I would never <laughs> tackle singing a song by Frank Sinatra recorded with a hundred piece orchestra. But uh, my wife at the time, who was English, had never heard that song. And I think one day I might have been playing it. And she said, that's the most lo you know, lovely song. Yeah. And uh, she, never, she had no preconceived Frank Sinatra thing in her head. So I, I, she said, you should play that song. And I said, are you joking? I mean, and I played her the original with a big band arrangement and the modulation in the middle. And, and uh, so I started thinking to myself, well, what would James Taylor, what would he do with this tune? You know, the way he interpreted Up on the Roof, for instance, is one of my favorite songs of his, you know, yeah. the old Carol King song. So I worked on it for three or four days and I said, you know what? This isn't so bad. And, uh, you know, you can't sound like Frank Sinatra, but we, uh, we put it on the list when I went to the studio. The producer loved it. We ended up recording it. And... As it turns out, about two years later, Willie Nelson did the same thing with that song. Did a right. did a uh, an acoustic version, uh, but that song was actually a, a, written in Germany. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if, if people don't know, but you can go back and Google that from the fifties, and it's this big uh, uh, choral singing this the summer wind. I mean, it's very dark and monstrous and ominous sounding and. Uh, it uh, Johnny Mercer, I believe, not only he not only translated the words, but he changed some of the words, and of course the arrangement. But the song, when I went to pay the royalties, I realized there were two songwriters. It was Johnny Mercer, and then the original German. So the song has quite a history, actually. So right. it's a great song. Sometimes simplicity is the best, and that's a classic example. Now, it, it kind of taps into something interesting because some people that you wouldn't necessarily consider, uh, they, you know, they're certainly not big band singers, but now James Taylor has done an album of standards. Bob Dylan, uh, Paul McCartney has done. Right. Uh, have you always enjoyed those types of songs? Oh, I, I yeah, I have. I, I, when I'm on the road, uh, when I'm on the road to this day and I'm, Getting out there, I've got a three or four hour drive and I might be a little groggy and not in the best mood. I often put the Sinatra station on. Yeah. And I love those songs. So, you know, no one, I mean, all, all a lot of those singers, but Sinatra sang with such attitude. Oh my, it's just, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I love, I love that kind of music. Yeah, for sure. Kind of a, a differ, different subject, but... I'm hoping you can tell us about this place where people can stop in in Key West, and also there's a lot of live music, the Smoking Tuna. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, we opened that I think 11 years ago now. Uh, there were there were five or six partners involved, and they they've all switched places over the years. But it was the brainchild of Charlie Bauer, who ran the Hogsbreath for 35 years and founded the Key West Songwriters Festival which is now in its 31st year, I believe. Charlie's always been a big promoter and fan of original music. So uh, he had left the, uh, the Hog's Breath and he was looking to start a great music venue in Key West. And after some fits and starts, he found this property 
and uh, there were three or four partners involved, and uh, and uh, it's doing great, and uh, it's been about eleven years, and uh, I think I think now it's considered by you know most people to be like the the music venue in Key West, you know, between the Songwriters Festival and all the other things that go on down there, Meeting of the Minds is just that's ground zero for meeting in the minds. I still play there now and then special events. I don't play there on a regular schedule anymore, but uh, no, terrific place. And uh, and people love it. Love, people love it. It's, it's an outdoor bar with great music and people love it. So if somebody is going to stop in, what do you recommend they get to eat? Oh, I always like the, uh, the tuna nachos, uh, the smoked tuna dip and the white bean chili. And uh, I haven't uh, been down there since March. They may have some new things on the menu now, but those were always my 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 two favorite: uh, the uh, the smoked tuna dip and the uh, white bean chili. But uh, they have a great fish sandwich, and you know they they have a lot of great bar type food there. Food is very important to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> You know, something that has come up in our interviews, but also it comes up in your songs, in your album titles, you know, uh, for just like a side note, like the uh, the fact that you, your conversation with Russ Kunkel had something to do with the kind of inspiration of Bank of Bad Habits relating back to Mark Twain. Right. Do, do you have potentially, you think in the future, possibly a book in you? You get asked that it? question a, a lot, and uh, I had dinner with Tom Rush the other night. We're from the same town. I love Tom Rush, and uh, for 20 years, we've both been talking. I mean, he's way above me, and he's a legend, you know, but uh, but we've often talked about writing a comical book. You know, I, I would write a comical book because, I mean, I, I you know, I, I've, I've had a very pleasant career and enjoyed myself and happy to grateful to make a living as a singer songwriter but i don't think i have any uh i can't be writing like a, a spruce springsteen book i'm going around the country playing 100 200 seat venues so but i have thought about writing a funny book about the absurdity of this business and uh w whether you're at the very top or the or the bottom or somewhere in between you know it's it's a it's a crazy business. The travel, the people you meet, the things that go wrong. I mean, I'm sure every profession has its uh, ups and downs and comical moments, but there is something that seems quite bizarre about trying to do this for a living. And just just think of the last seven or eight years. Right. First, all the revenue has been trying to make a scratch out of living. All the revenue has been stripped out of albums right you know that started with you know itunes and now the streaming things you get no money and then uh, then covid came and then this year i'm i'm out in california touring and gas is like 726 a gallon what? i'm saying what what could go wrong next you know, it's you know but i'm still grateful and this is where the humor comes in you know uh i thought the title of my book would be gigs from hell 30 failed years in the music business, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. It's quick. All right, cool. <clears throat> so uh, something that has come up again and again in, in your song lyrics, and uh, it's just, it's a big part of you, 
How would you say Key West has affected you as a person? Key West, uh, when I moved to Key West, people in Key West told me they thought I was the most normal person they'd ever met in Key West. When I lived in New England, my friend said, you're the strangest person we know in New England. So that shows you how different New England and Key West are. So Key West was a, you know, I came from a career in politics. Key West was a very freeing moment for me to throw off the shackles of the real world, working in a very uh, responsible job. The confines of growing up in a place like New England is very traditional. Uh, people thought I was insane uh, when I went to Key West to do this in 1988. In fact, there was a major pool, I think, of how, how long it would take me to come crawling back. And uh, so it was, a very, it was a very freeing moment to, to move to Key West. One of the best things I've ever done. Uh, I don't write as many Key West songs, you know, at this point, you know, because you can only go to that well so many times. I do have one Key West song on the new album called I Lost Another Day Last Night, which uh, I've been playing quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, Key West, uh, you can't live in a place like, like that without knowing that it doesn't work out so well for so many people who come down there or try to move down there. It's a very uh, difficult place to live. It's very expensive. There are very, there are very, uh, uh, there are no controls on your life. There's no reason to go home at night. You're at some beautiful bar under the moonlight at two in the morning. You don't have to drive. Someone is buying you another drink. The moon's over the ocean. That's not necessarily a positive thing for most people, and many people can't handle that lack of discipline and a and some structure in their lives. It's not worked out very well for a lot of people I've known over the years. So um, that's really what that song is about. I lost hmm. another day last night. And, um, but fantastic place. It still has a lot of magic and uh, not the same it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 20 years ago, but it still has you know, a lot of magic. Has there been somebody that you would maybe want to write with at some point that you haven't yet? Well, I, I've not written a lot with other, you know, I've written with Peter Mayer, I've written with Russ Kunkel, a couple songs of Roger Guth, uh, and a few other songs with a couple other people. But I, my writing experience is, su is such a, a solitary position. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are a million, I, you know, I've never really, just I like to write a song with, uh, you know, Jackson Brown, or I don't really, mm -hmm. I actually don't think in those, uh, really think in those terms. Um, I might think I'd like to write a song. I hear a song, well, I wish I could write a song like that. Or uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, I really enjoy, I really enjoy writing with Russ actually. He and I have kind of a, seem to have some type of vibe where we come up with these song ideas and, and, uh, and Peter Mayer as well. But uh, I, I, I really been enjoying, God, I'm glad you, I've really been enjoying writing with Andy Thompson and Matt Thompson, the last two albums. We, we wrote, uh, we worked great together. Uh, we wrote Chasing Hemingway's Ghost, This Place Is My Home. We've got a couple tracks on the new album that we co-wrote together. Uh, and I, I'm really comfortable with those guys. And, and the music side of songwriting is not my strength. 
the lyrical side is those guys musically are just they're just so phenomenal you know and they've written hundreds of songs so if someone said here you're going to sit down and write a, a song with you know james taylor or someone i would probably freak out freeze up and not come up with one word so probably just as well hmm. has there been a best compliment that you've received through the years not just as a musician well i'm not i'm not sure compliment is the right word or just a uh the things that strike me the, the most i would say over the years is this has happened quite a few times where people that come up to me and said you know i was really sick last year and had a really serious operation and you know your one of your cds got me i took it in with me when i went under anesthesia first thing i listened to uh i've had that happen quite a number of times and, and some of the people that have communicated with me about that you know didn't didn't make it mm -hmm. and uh i mean i don't i don't know if it's necessarily necessarily a compliment but it's certainly very uh humbling and touching and and uh you know i said to someone a few years ago not too many people have a job like that where you know uh they don't generally call their car salesman and say, I'm going on a really serious surgery. I'm glad you sold me that Chevy, you know? Right. <laughs> but but that that's always struck me is when that happens, it really like it's like a it's like a hammer to the side of my head, like, okay, you should consider yourself fortunate. What would you say has surprised you the most about your life? Well, I've lived this long that i'm uh that i've been so fortunate i've been so lucky uh never spent a night in the hospital i'm blessed with great health i've had my share of tragedies in my family like everyone else but uh uh when covid came i really surprised myself and i can actually say this honestly that it was one of the best year year or two of my life even though i lost income I, I look back at that and the, as the best year or two of my life. Mm. And uh, the fact that, I, uh, that I'm living abroad, you know, part of the year at this age, uh, you know, I'm from Pennacook, New Hampshire, you know, a little town of 1,500 people, a little mill town. And, uh, you know, I, I've always loved to travel, as I mentioned in an interview with you 20 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and that I've ended up, doing this job and uh i started very late you know doing this 34 35 years old but when i was 16 and i was a class clown in my high school class and not a good student i was very friendly with the two guidance counselors so i would play my guitar in school and so my junior year one of them said everyone's getting ready to go to college and and i i did go to college as well but they said kirby what are you what are you gonna do you know are you going to go to college? What are you going to do? What is your plan? You know, I was not a great student. I was a class clown. I said, my plan, now this is when James Taylor just hit the scene. I said, my plan is to move to Martha's Vineyard and be a, be a songwriter. And they laughed. They, well, you can't do that. I said, I know, but that's what I'd like to do. Okay, what are you really going to do? So about 15 years later, 
I was taking a bus to Logan Airport, and my guidance counselor was on the bus going to uh, work at Harvard. And I had my first CD with me. His name was Dick Donovan. And I hadn't seen him since literally high school. And I'm like 34 years old. And I, hey, he knew, he knew that I'd gone on to become a musician. I said, hey, I have it at my first CD. So I was able to give it to him. And I never held it against him. I love the guy. I love my two guys. I love so many of my teachers are still my friends. But to me, that was a, a bit of irony, you know, that, uh, that I actually said that at 16. And then somewhere, somewhere, somewhere along the way, uh, I became very influenced by the writer Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. The power of myth and follow your bliss and all that, and that struck me in my in my thirties is when I you know realized I wasn't I wasn't really going off and doing what I was meant to do. So it all worked out. It worked out for me. So that I guess is a, you know it. I looked at my yearbook the other day from nineteen seventy two, and it says under my name Scott Scott aims to surprise everyone by coming becoming successful at something. <laughs> Ah, that's true. That's exactly what it says. So that's, that's great. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. That could be like in a liner note. Right. You know, right. So we won't hold you to this. This is, this is the the last question I have. As best as you could answer this, what would you say the key to a good life is? Uh, I have a song that I wrote with Annie Thompson on the new record. And the chorus is, work hard, play hard, die easy. Live hard, love hard, die easy. That's the chorus. And uh, so I think that's a simplification. But I think if you do everything within reason that you like to try, you you uh, are passionate about life, you try different things, you're, then you're, you're not going to have regrets when you get old and your time is short. Now, not everyone is as lucky as I've been. People have terrible diseases when they're young. You know, there's all kinds of horrible things that can happen along the way. But that's part of the process of being on the planet. And, uh, you know, I've been very lucky. I mean, I, I am very, very grateful. But I see a lot of people that live their lives very uh, timidly. Right. And who am I to say, you know, how they should live or not live? But uh, I think this has been said six billion times, but you only go around once. And uh, I'm not one of those who believes in the afterlife, not to, not to get into religion. But so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not waiting to go to some paradise in the next couple of years so i'm in paradise now so i'm going to take advantage of it you know when i've listened to the the last two interviews and now this is the the third recorded interview uh i can't help but think we've covered a lot of ground uh, right from kind of uh somewhat philosophical things um bars songwriting hookers <laughs> it's it's really really run a great variety uh but i always like to end i just give the guests the stage an open forum you can say whatever you want 
Is there anything that we left out? Anything you would like to say to the people out there? Well, I want to thank everyone who's listening to this. They've probably been to my shows or they may come to a show. And uh, to think that these tens of thousands of people have given up their evenings to come see me play. Some of them is recently have driven as much as six or eight hours. You know, right. I can thank countless people that come see me perform. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so appreciative. Tonight's a good example. We're barely over COVID. They're going to be 60 or 70 people that cram into this beautiful little room. Uh, even though we're not fully out of this thing and they're going to give up their money and come and, and possibly risk getting a, a mild, you know, COVID case. And, you know, I'm, it just blows my mind. And uh, I had to give a little speech at my 50th class reunion a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I said, grateful. I'm just I'm so grateful for everything that's happened to me and the people I've got to work with and the people I've got to entertain. So that's, that's really it. Well said. Well, thank you for having me on again. Thank you. A pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Check out scottkirby.com. And I just want to thank the Roasting Room here in Bluffton, South Carolina for the venue. You know, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you. Listeners, viewers, please go to thepaulleslie.com slash support, and you'll know what to do when you're there. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who contributes. Performance of The Entertainer intro song by John Primerano. And of course, this is your announcer speaking. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour.